Welcome to this morning. Welcome to the sun, its bright rays piercing the sky. Welcome to the cold, whipping through our coats and making us glad to be inside. Welcome to our longtime members striding into this hall, knowing that it is their home. Welcome to our visitors, making their first tentative steps inside our doors. Welcome to our children, wriggling and laughing, their energy rippling through our gathering. Welcome to you, to each one of you, bringing with you the precious and unique identity that only you can bring this morning. Welcome. Hi. Hi. It's a privilege to be here in the first Sunday of uh, our new era. But I'm not going to talk now about timely things. Uh, I will be talking at 1230 uh, on about the timely things. Uh, last time I was here was in March of 2006, and I was speaking then about the concept of evil, which uh, had something to do with the old era. Um, well, it was the old era that led me to think about such things. Uh, I'm very pleased not to have to think from the same place today. Today I'm going to talk about more timeless things, the concept of justice. How much do you love justice? I've always thought of myself as loving justice quite a lot. And you know, the introduction, I, I was thinking I wanted to do a commentary on the introduction to me. It, it, you said that my uh, uh, concern about ethical things began when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, but it actually began before that. My mother, when we had a piece of halva in the house, would bring out the sharpest knife in the house, which, given my mother's kitchen, was not that sharp. But she said she couldn't be trusted with a sharp knife. Uh, and she would split the piece with micrometer-like precision so that my brother's piece and my piece would be the same. She believed in justice. <laughs> Long before I got to Harvard, I was concerned about ethical things. and uh, I do think I have a passion for justice, but I also observe my behavior with a certain degree of honesty, and I see that I'm really concerned about myself as well. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. I uh, had the uh, mixed privilege of teaching uh, adolescents in New Mexico uh, for a few years this, in, during this decade. Bright, bright kids from mostly privileged backgrounds. And I was teaching American studies and I wanted them to think about things from a perspective other than learning names, dates, and places. That really wasn't all that important to me but to understand the world they lived in, and I would start talking to them about justice as we talked about how the continent came to be in the possession of people with our color skin 
uh, had been in the possession of a different group of people. Anyway, I found that the, their concern with justice was less than a passion. And I gave them an assignment one day to uh, think about how would their life and how would their world be different if there had been no injustice. Thinking about the fact that we were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where land had changed hands from, from uh, Native Americans to, to the Spanish to the Anglos, without agreement on all sides in each case. And I found that they really didn't like that thought experiment. So I began a practice of uh, bringing in little stories about justice, just to get them to think about it. And those stories uh, make up the heart of what we're going to, what I'm going to talk about and you're going to hear about in the next uh, short while. I'm going to start with a passage from Thucydides, the Greek of, uh, I guess, the, I guess, how do you count it, 4th century B.C.E. Uh, he wrote a book called The Peloponnesian Wars, which was basically a conflict between Athens, who I was brought up to think of as the good guys. My father was, got his first academic appointment with after his Ph.D. at Michigan State, and there was this big Spartan there in the middle of the roadway and my father expressed to me his chagrin that they I, that the place was identified with the uh, with the the city state that was warring upon the place where ideas and the mind uh, you know, the militaristic guys but as it turns out the athenians were not just paragons of intellectual integrity and in this particular instance which uh, in, in thucydides it has to do with the uh, siege of an island named Melos. Uh, the Athenians in their war had an idea of the role that this island and the islanders should play. The people on the island, the, Mel the Melians, had different ideas. They said basically, this isn't our concern, this war you're in. We just want to, we have the right to live our lives as we see fit. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. And the Athenians didn't think that that was an acceptable answer. And as their negotiations came to a head, the Athenians said, according to Thucydides, of the gods we believe and of men we know that by a necessary law of their nature, they rule wherever they can. You know as well as we do that right as the world goes, is in question only between equals in power. While the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. Well, if the, if the right is in question only between equals in power, then it's really never in question at all. This is a, a statement from the same culture that uh, where Plato, in a book written about the, uh, organized around the question, what is justice, creates a character to a name Thrasymachus, who actually was a person, who is a foil to uh, Socrates, and he defines justice as the interest of the stronger party. 
And this is the same thing we see here. So we start here with the Athenians who um, are basically giving us a portrait in which there is no role for justice by a necessary law of their nature. I mean, they've just swept, like Thrasymachus, they just sweep justice away. And it's a very cruel world in which only power rules. This is a portrait of what happens in the world when there is no justice. In the case of the Melians, the Melians were never persuaded either by the threat or by the argument. And so the Athenians lay siege, and the Melians, showing no signs of yielding, the generals at once betook themselves to hostility. Then some treachery taking place inside, the Melians surrendered at discretion to the Athenians, who put to death all the grown men whom they took, and sold the women and children for slaves, and subsequently sent out 500 colonists and inhabited the place themselves. You know, history has a lot of that kind of stuff in it. It's kind of, I think we get through the day just because we mostly forget about how much of that there is in the world. But I want, I want to pay tribute to one thing about the Athenians in this, especially for us Americans who have just gone through a, the old era. It is at least refreshing that they made no pretense to be doing anything else. They weren't talking about liberating the Athenians, the Melians. They, they didn't say, you Melians hate us because of our freedom. So I, I, having been brought up with a father who was put a... I, he never cut the halvah, I remember. But he put a very high uh, priority on intellectual honesty, and he would have appreciated that at least, and as his son, so do I. The next uh, story is also from the Greeks, only it's a little bit later, and it's from a Greek slave named, or at least uh, we're told he was named, Aesop, Aesop, A-E-S-O-P. And uh, he, by the way, died because he told some one of his fables uh, at the wrong time, uh, having to do with an abuse of power. Uh, anyway, uh, but he didn't probably know that when he wrote this thing about the wolf and the lamb. There's a wolf that is hungry, and he sees a lamb drinking from the, from the creek, and he says to the, to the lamb, Why are you muddying my water? You deserve to become my dinner for muddying my water. And the lamb says, But sir... I couldn't be muddying your water because you are upstream from me. I am downstream. Yeah, well, last year at this time you insulted me. But sir, says the lamb, I'm only born this spring. Last year at this time I wasn't around at all. And the wolf says, well, whatever, and jumps on the lamb and has his dinner. Now, in some senses, this is a step up from the Athenians in that he at least was willing, I may say hypocrisy is the lip service this, that uh, vice pays to virtue. He was at least concerned to justify his actions. And you might say that that's a tribute uh, of sorts. Actually, there are different versions of this fable. In one version, the wolf says to himself, if I can just find an excuse... 
But there are other versions in which the wolf actually seems to maybe believe where, you know, that there is some justification for getting what he wants. So he's really sort of striving for there to be a justification. I think that version is a little bit more plausible as I think about it because the only audience for his argument is the lamb who's not going to be around to judge him at the end of the action. So I think self-deception is a very important part, which takes us to the next story, which is from Jane Austen. I hope you don't mind time travel at such a speed. This is from Sense and Sensibility, which I've never read, but I have seen the movie twice. <laughs> and I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, so I am qualified to speak about Jane Austen. In the first scene of the movie, the father, who is quite old, which is to say probably about 10 years younger than I am now, is on his deathbed. And he says to the, his son that by law, his property will be his. Firstborn son gets it. But your stepmother and your half-sisters are left out. They've got not nearly enough, he says. You've got to help them. You must promise me. So a little bit of this interaction. The son, oh, father, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the son promises. Promises his father on his deathbed that he will take care of his stepmother and his sisters. Then he goes home. The father dies. He comes into the property. And we see him shortly thereafter with his wife who is, as Jane Austen would not have put it, a piece of work. And the husband says, I mean to give them 3,000 pounds. Surely that would discharge my promise. And she says, more than adequately. Then there's a, there's a little bit of passage of time. This takes place over time. It's a cutting of scenes. I don't know how it is in the book. You, know, you people who can read can find out. But. And uh, she says, he, or he says, of course he didn't stipulate a particular amount. 1,500 pounds, he says. And the wife says, well, what you can afford. Next scene, he says, I'll pay them a, a thousand, a hundred pounds a month. The wife says, she might live for more than 15 years. I guess it must have been 100 pounds a year if that was going to be the 15. Yeah, 100 pounds a year it must be. And then the wife says, one can go on living indefinitely if there is annuity involved. And then finally the wife says, and this I think is just wonderful. Human beings are so wonderful. I am convinced within myself that your father had no thought of actually giving them money. And that's basically how it ends up. And Emma Thompson and her sisters are really in tough straits. Justice eventually is done. That's the great thing about art. But the world is not composed by a novelist. Whether it's composed by any other kind of author, I leave to ethical society not to wrestle with. So that's the next step. There's the, there's the complete ruthlessness. 
There's the search for justifications, like liberating them. I won't go on about the old age. And then there's the rationalization. And then there's another story going back in time, back to the Mediterranean, but on the far eastern side of the Mediterranean where King David is king of the, what were they called at that point? Were they Hebrews or were they Jews yet? Well, anyway, king of those folks. And King David, uh, there's more told about King David, I think, than any other character in the Old Testament, with the possible exception of Joseph. So we get to see him in a lot of different incarnations. And he's definitely into his carnation in this business, where he sees Bathsheba taking a bath on her rooftop. And he thinks she looks really good. And he wants her the way a handsome, virile, kingly warrior might want a woman. And she's married to Uriah the Hittite. That doesn't get in his way at first. He summons her, she comes, and she gets pregnant. So. But Uriah the Hittite isn't home. He's out fighting for King David. And since she's pregnant, there's evidence that she's not been alone the whole time. So David gives... Uriah uh, arranges for Uriah to get a, a pass to come home. But Uriah's got these principles about he doesn't want to have all the good things in life that his men out in the field don't have, so he does not cover up the evidence, if you know what I mean. So he goes back to, he's going to go back to battle without having given the sort of out that David was looking for in this whole maneuver. So he tries another measure, which is to give Uriah a sealed letter to give to his commander, which basically says, put Uriah in battle where he's going to get killed. Yep, that one works. And David would be home free, except he lives in a world where there's a God and where God has got his prophets. That's God now. Uh, <laughs> In this case, the prophet of God is, the, is Nathan, and Nathan comes before David and says to him, he, there's a problem I'd like to hear your opinion about. That's not the biblical language. It was actually in Hebrew. And he came unto him and said, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. That's a nice relationship with the lamb. My daughter is here, by the way, too. Bah! <laughs> and there came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. And he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. By dressed it, they don't, don't mean like one of those vests. Prepared it as a meal. 
And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, that man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan says to him, Thou art the man. Ah, would that there always was a Nathan and a God to make all these things stick. But the lesson in this that I pointed out to my students and I point out to you is that it's, there's a saying that no man can be the judge in his own case. Which brings us back to this whole problem that we have as human beings. We say we love justice. But what we usually mean is we want justice. When we're the injured party, we say, I want justice. Or as in this case, David did have a love of justice, but it was strong enough to give, have him impassioned when he thought of the thing in the abstract, but when, when he wanted Bathsheba and wanted to spare himself any embarrassment, then his love of justice wasn't strong enough to rule his conduct with respect to Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. How much do you love justice? I only have one good story about actual justice. What I've told you is three story, four stories so far of injustice in its different stages. If you have any good stories about justice, please come to me and give them. I'd like to have a better bouquet. But this one is from a, it's a rabbinical story, and I don't know its origins, but uh, it's something uh, from the, the culture of the shtetl, uh, so it's probably reasonably recent, last few hundred years. A rabbi comes home, and he finds his wife dressing uh, to go out. And where are you going, he says. I'm going to take a case to the, to, the, to the court, the rabbinical court or whatever. What, what happened here? Look, the, the, young, the young woman who cleans their house broke a treasured vase, the wife says. She denies it, and I'm going to take her to court to get rest, reparations. And the, the rabbi says, wait. Let me, let me get my things together. I'll go with you. She says, you don't need to go with me. I know how to present this case. He said, I wasn't going to go to help you. That's the poor young woman who doesn't have the education to defend herself. She's the one I was going to go and represent. I like that. So... We live in a world which is, the, what the Athenians said to describe it is accurate enough to capture a whole lot of how the world works, whether it's growing chocolate or who owns the continent we live on or whether one has a doctrine of preemptive war that one would never accept in any other actor other than oneself. The world isn't just as the Athenians described. We are 
inclined toward a certain degree of selfishness. But we are not completely lost to other considerations. I've heard it said that there are basically, there is love and there is justice. There's two different principles for making the world more whole. I see them in a way as two different sides of the same coin. They both have to do with whether or not one's emotional value field is completely closed in on oneself, or whether one loves the other person and takes their well-being as being important to one's own heart. That's love. And justice is the love of a principle or of a way the world might be. They're both a form of going beyond oneself. And as these stories suggest, doing that in either mode is a challenge. But one of the things about the way the world works is that the more that the world works in the way the Athenians describe, the more we all tend to be taught in the ways of looking out for ourselves, the more distrust, the more unscrupulousness rules the world. On the other hand, the more we can get outside of ourselves and act toward each other, either out of a love for the other or out of a love for the principles by which the world can be made whole, the more the experience in the world in general teaches that pattern. That's what a kind of thing I'm going to be talking about in a way, is that there are these patterns that are at war in our world. And every time we act from the pattern of justice, we do, in fact, tip the balance a little further in that direction. So it is with that thought that I will leave you. We are challenged to love justice, to act justly. It is a struggle, but every time we win, every time our love of justice wins in that battle, we do change the world, and we also change the pattern that rules within ourselves. Thank you. As we close this morning, having heard stories of justice, having heard our children call for justice, and hearing ourselves echo that plea. I want to share with you some final words from Emma Goldman, the great activist. She writes, Someday, men and women will rise. They will reach the mountain peak. They will meet big and strong and free, ready to receive, to partake, and to bask in the golden rays of love. What fancy, what imagination, what poetic genius can foresee the potentialities of such a force in the life of men and women? <laughs>